Hello and welcome to episode number 57 of Future Chat from Unwind Media. My name is Rob Attrell and I'm joined each week by my co-host Mike Attrell. We're also joined by Nick Maddox, our insightful and intelligent senior contributor. Every single week on this show, we aim to discuss all of the week's most interesting science and tech news. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. They have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audibletrial.com slash unwind, as in unwind media. Their library includes programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine, and newspaper publishers. So, how are you guys doing today? Christ, what a morning. <laughs> what happened? Other than me thinking that, you know, this is going to happen an, early, or an hour <laughs> earlier than it actually was. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Google Calendar was giving you some issues with time zones. No, no, like nope. Google, Plus, Google Plus. And there was even inconsistency Wait. within the push notification, the app, and the desktop. Oh. Google Calendar was great. I Google misunderstood then. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it might have something to do with the fact that I set the, the time in Greenwich Mean Time. <laughs> Maybe? That would explain why it shows That's, that. Even then, though, it like converted yeah, it, to Eastern weird. Standard. Like, I, I, Yeah, Eastern Standard is not the time zone that is currently in use. It, it, that is yeah. a weird bug. Yeah. But we're here now. And uh, we have a number of stories that are following up on previous week's stories. Uh, so why don't we get to those first? And the first big one is Tesla. Uh, I we, t- we talked last week a little bit. And at that point, I think Nick is more coffeeed than he was last week. So hopefully we can discuss uh, the Tesla Gigafactory in a little more detail. Uh, I read earlier this week that the Tesla Gigafactory is now already not, it's already now overbooked to make batteries for its power wall and for, I mean, obviously the, the test, it's hoping to make Tesla batteries as well uh, for the model S and the model, whatever the new cars they have. Uh, but they got a bunch of reser- reservations and pre-orders for the power wall. And so they're already thinking we're going to have to make another gigafactory or another big battery factory in order to meet the demand for batteries. And it turns out the gigafactory apparently can produce a yearly output of 50 gigawatt hours. So order of magnitude is about right, I guess, within, within a couple of orders uh, for the, in terms of the yearly output. But apparently f- over 50,000 Powerwall units were reserved and they're already sold out through 2016. I've heard through the middle of 2016. I've heard through 2016 itself. So uh, it seems like people really want this, the power wall, and people are really hungry for new batteries, big batteries. What do you guys think about this? Do you think people realize what it is they're even going to do with the power wall when they get it? Yeah, I think so. I'd uh, like to think so, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's going to take infrastructure work, obviously, but... Yeah. I think a lot of people are jumping on it just because it's Tesla and it's like something they can kind of be involved in. I don't know. Like, you'd think that if there was that much demand for something like it, the market would have responded sooner. Yeah, but at the same time, nobody really... Like, nobody was doing this before in such a large scale. 
Because I guess people right now are going to be using it for the energy banking capabilities as far as eating off the grid and then at when it's cheaper and then distributing it when it's more expensive. Right. Versus like the solar panel integration aspect. But I I'd imagine that would come into play down the road. Yeah. Once solar panels got a bit more cheap. Yeah. I mean, there another company that Elon Musk founded or co-founded is called solar cell and they work with leasing solar panels. So, uh, one of the things that, that came out this, I guess it was this week or maybe a little bit earlier is that they, solar cell is not partnering with Powerwall. So anyone who wants both is going to have to order that. Like they're going to have to work totally separately to get both. And you can't lease a Powerwall. You have to buy it. Another thing that I heard, and I couldn't actually verify this. I, I haven't looked into, I have no interest whatsoever in owning a Powerwall right now because they're just, it, it just doesn't make sense for me. But apparently it's very easy to reserve one. You, you don't have to put a credit card down or anything. You don't have to put any amount of money down. Oh, you just really? basically say, I, I want one. Oh, that's even worse. That's, well, I mean, like, it's huge demand, but yeah. Well, it's enough demand of clicking a button, not to actually put your money where your mouth I is. I don't know if it's clicking a button, but it's, it's filling out a form. It's not difficult. A lot of people could, right. could do it and not necessarily actually want to buy one. Right. Or be prepared yeah. to buy one, I mean. If you had the money, though, especially in Ontario, you could charge the you could charge the Powerwall during the off-peak hours at the discount rate, and then just have it go back into the grid at peak hours. Yep, arbitrage. <laughs> also, oh, like sell it back to the grid. Yeah, that would Is be that interesting. A thing? I don't. I don't think that would necessarily work in the way you're expecting. Like, I don't think they would give you. I think they, they just bank your energy, not at whatever rate. No, like yeah. if you have if you have a smart meter, it measures what you put in when you put uh, in, put it uh, in. I guess I so, think. but I, I feel like they would change that policy. To, to I don't know, you like they, or I'm not sure whether they give you money based on demand, but like yeah. you get 18 cents a kilowatt hour, and if you could charge it during off peak hours, and then sell it back to the grid, you would be doing so to profit, I think. Right. So by it's that like, logic, you could make a business where you buy a bank of batteries. Yeah. You like mining like charge Bitcoin. them up. Yeah. Charge them up off peak and then yeah. sell it back on peak. And that's all you'd be doing. Yeah. yeah. Just be like, like, fl- yeah. Even in Belleville, like they have, uh, for the new rink they put in yeah. or the sports complex in the summer months, they just, they have a big, pool of water on the roof and then at yeah. night when the energy's cheap they basically they just freeze it and right. then during the day they pump the air through it and that's where their air conditioning comes from right so like a heat exchange type thing ish yeah but it like actually right. freezes the water overnight <laughs> hmm. but you're heat exchanging from the hot air to make it cooler yes yeah, like you could, I'm almost certain you could make a profit on, on that. It's the same hmm. feed-in system, unless they've changed it, that uh, the solar cooperative in Ottawa works off of, which yeah. you both and Ottawa viewers will be familiar with. Yeah. Also, uh, I ran the numbers for the production rate right now. Ontario's nuclear plants 
would have the Gigafactory's annual output in, <laughs> let's see, 5.79 hours. <laughs> that's, you said that's the yearly, like that's 50 gigawatt hours. In a that's few, 50 in five gigawatt hours. hours. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's as if nuclear is a very good baseline energy source. Why are we not funding this? <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. So if, uh, only, if only people could have little fusion reactors in their homes. Yeah, that would be cool. Give them a little, <laughs> a little adorable name, like, like Mister Fusion. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting into the future territory here now. <laughs> Ooh, future chat. <laughs> Look out. Uh, all right, we have a bit more Tesla news later on, but uh, we'll move on for now to, I just wanted to, this is, I just found a story here. We had talked a few weeks ago, if not maybe now, about a month ago, about the uh, telescope, the big 30 meter telescope that they're building in Hawaii using what, 250, 275 million Canadian dollars. Uh, and I just, I want, I'm going to put a link to this essay on Slate about science versus culture and sort of how, how the ways that science has kind of bulldozed over some aspects of culture and how the people, the native Hawaiians who are complaining about the telescope and protesting it's being built is, it is not really about the telescope itself, but it's about the way science impacts sort of the natural history and the natural culture of place and there have been lots of examples about throughout history and they go through a number of these in, in this essay just about how sometimes science can ruin or, or completely destroy culture so it's it's worth reading when we first talked about this i can't remember if i brought it up or not but it reminded me a lot of how in a lot of energy producing provinces and states you'll have that compromise and conflict between industry and corporations and the local population and specifically, you know, either native Canadians or Americans. Um, and how there's always that kind of negotiation between the companies saying, okay, well, there's this resource underneath your land, uh, that we need to access by, you know, building a lease and facilities and whatever. And then, you know, the locals will say, well, what's in it for us, right? Because this is our land. This is, there's history here uh there's you know nature wildlife that kind of thing so you you know lease out the land and you have whatever kind of uh donations to the community and hire their community members for your projects and that kind of stuff um to kind of acknowledge that yeah you know they're they're giving up a lot to allow you to use their their land and i think that people tend to side with the locals and uh the natives in those types of situations because it's evil corporations and they're just trying to get the oil out of the ground and that kind of thing. But in this case, because it's governments and, you know, scientists, which, you know, they're still scientists at oil and gas companies, but that's mm -hmm. beside the point. Um, because it's maybe an endeavor that's more research and uh, academic based versus exploitation of resources that people might tend to side more with the government and the people wanting to build the telescope but the considerations are still the same, whether it's a telescope or drilling for oil. Um, so I, mean, I, I don't. For, for for me, that was an interesting kind of perspective, I guess. 
there was also the issue that they did discuss it publicly. Like, yeah, yeah. they had public hearings on the matter. And that is when you can raise objections. Like, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. They did raise for, objections. They they really did. Yeah. And for the record, with oil and gas, there's public hearings and negotiations with the locals as well. It's not just, for, they don't just bulldoze in there and say, hey, we're going to drill here, whether you like it or not. Right. <laughs> I'm not trying to white knight for, for imperial oil or anything. I'm just, I'm just trying to give the, the other side of things. Well, I mean, what with Rachel Notley in power now? Like, <laughs> is anyone going to be able to drill ever? <laughs> we'll only have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That, all I want to say is I think it's important to look not just from, I mean, obviously we take a, a perspective that's biased towards science and scientists, but there is another side of things. And maybe the, if these Native Hawaiians felt like their voice wasn't being heard, even if they did attend these hearings, it's important to note that history has at times completely destroyed ecosystems and they've like, it has ruined some people's lives. So it's not, it's not without precedent that this is happening. Yep. Yeah. So, um, the, I guess I, I'm partial again to Tesla news and this was of particular interest to me because uh, I, I don't own a car, but if I was going to own a car, I, I feel like I would want it to be electric just because of all the amazing benefits. And I don't I don't really go anywhere. Most of the driving I do is in the city. And so news came out this week, uh, or at least in a, uh, I believe it was the earnings call for Tesla for the last quarter. Uh, Elon Musk was asked about the future plans for, for Tesla Motors. And uh, he set a tentative timeline for the, the next uh, Tesla model. And it's going to be a cheap one, Tesla Model 3. Apparently, it's going to market for around thirty dollars to $35,000 before any rebates you get, which would be very competitive, not just with other electric cars that are slated to be coming out around that time, but they're also it's also very competitive with just gas-powered cars. Apparently, the average selling price for a car in the States is 32000 And so this falls right in that area. So it, it would be nice to not have to decide between, like to have to use financials as a reason not to go electric so i I hope this is something that Mm. actually does come out i mean he was saying march he said immediately in the press conference he said march and then backed off and said well this is an approximate timeline i'm not like i'm not setting a shipping date (laughs) announcing yeah Yeah, i'm saying that we're looking our timeline currently that we're aggressively pursuing is for march of next year Mm. we had covered a story and a want to say it was nissan or is it ford that was going to come out with a sub thirty thousand dollar electric vehicle i want to say it was chevy electric the chevy volt no that one's already a thing no but uh, there's a new uh, sub thirty thousand dollar yeah yeah it might have been chevy i think it was a u.s company yeah i want to say it was either ford or chevy okay whatever but yeah i guess at the time we're saying well this is kind of giving tesla a run for its money but if they're going to kind of start in uh pursuing that same price point then yeah like you said it's going to be interesting to see where the market goes being competitive with gas vehicles as well yeah nick did you have any thoughts on that would you buy an electric car if it was thirty thousand dollars oh absolutely i mean if i had thirty thousand dollars to buy a car (laughs) 
<laughs> so I guess the answer is no. <laughs> Not at this point. Maybe we'll uh, see in a couple of years. I am in a state of fun employment, so not buying a whole lot. As long as it is fun. Oh, always. <laughs> Has anyone looked at the viability of running the electric vehicles in like colder weather? Like the operation of the battery, if it gets degraded? I'd imagine you'd have some sort of like heaters in the... Heaters in the, that are permanent? The mo- like around the motor, or around the battery. Um, to keep it warm. I would imagine they've taken that into account in testing. Yeah. I don't think it would degrade the battery permanently. It might reduce the life, uh, the range a little bit. Yeah, that that's, that's kind of what I'm referring to. Yeah. Well, there, yeah. there's the, the Nernst equation will tell you how it affects right. the potential. It, I don't, I, I seriously doubt that it would affect the potential, but there's also the fact that no, batteries, it, it affects the potential. No, but I mean, in a, in an electric motor, I imagine that battery would heat up or it would stay pretty hot. Like while it's charging, it would be hot. And while you're running it, it would at least run a little bit hot. So it, I oh, doubt yeah, that the potential well, would be affected. I much. guess. Yeah. Like to start off true. though, it's going to be, yeah, I don't know, reluctant to start maybe, or maybe. just not really pushing out as much as it could in the beginning. Yeah. Right. I, I've only heard, I mean, I've only seen Tesla test drives in very nice weather. Uh, so commenting on that specifically would be difficult, but I also know that they, it had like people say it has insane acceleration. So I, I kind of doubt that, like, I feel like they would have taken that into account at least right. maybe, maybe not frigid weather. Like if your gas car won't start, this one probably won't start either. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. It'll be interesting to come out. I, if I buy a car, I think it'll be electric. I just will have to wait and see what, what comes up. So, uh, Nick, feel free to pay attention, but Mike, uh, you have a story here about Apple watch. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know if people anticipated this or saw it coming, but I, it was a nice story for me to come across that. Uh, when Apple Watch first came out, we talked about what it could and couldn't do, uh, kind of specifically regarding sensors and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then a while ago, we had a story about smart bands uh, and how they can be integrated with existing smart watches. And some smart watches are allowing those types of integrations to occur. So Apple recently announced that they were going to start their Made for Apple Watch program. And I guess they already have a made-for-iPhone program for accessories, which I wasn't super familiar with. I could imagine they'd have it, but I guess it's kind of not as sketchy third-party, but it's like Apple saying, yeah, this this is okay, or it kind of passes whatever quality tests. Yep. Uh, so they'll have a similar thing for the Apple Watch bands, that you're not restricted to just the Apple bands, but third parties can kind of come up with their own band designs and materials and that kind of thing. And Apple will provide them with the lugs, the lug hardware to attach onto the watch. So you're not restricted by coming up with a design that can integrate with it. They'll just say, like, hey, here's the lugs for it. Uh, give us the watch band that you want to kind of be certified. Right. Um, and then I don't think the article specifically mentioned this that I came across, but it does open the window for the possibility of smart bands kind of in entering that market if Apple kind of enables their software to kind of talk to the smart band and, and use those sensors. So it's, I, I, I see it as nothing but good. Yeah. Kind of unwalling the, the yeah. walled garden. 
this came right after the announcement, like suspiciously closely to the announcement that companies were looking at using the little diagnostic port that's hidden inside the, the band area to be able to either charge the watch or uh, be able to connect with it in some way in a similar way to the pebble, the new pebble time. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's convenient that Apple came out with this program. I'm sure they've been working on it for a while, but I think the publishing of it is is conspicuously timed with this sort of people saying, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna go do this." They're saying, "No, you're not gonna do this, but we will give you these this set of tools to work with to make watch bands." I think it's a very similar idea to uh, iPhone cases. So the the made for iPhone program gives people specs of size and and durability and all this this kind of stuff to get an actual certified made for iPhone thing. So when you when you buy a case, you want to know that it's going to protect your phone. So I think that in a similar way, if you buy an Apple Watch band, a band that's not made by Apple, you'd want to have be at least feel somewhat comfortable that it's going to stay on your wrist, like it's not going to just break or it's not going to be a very low quality. And so I think this is a way for them to not have to. I don't think Apple wants to make a watch band for everyone. They want to make a watch band to fit the majority of people but then let other people fill in the niches where where they may exist and there might be a space later to add other things like battery uh but yeah mm-hmm. a, another thing that i noticed and in, in same thing with tesla is that batteries heat up so you wouldn't necessarily want this hot thing on your wrist all day uh, you might end up getting sort of low degree burns over the course of a day nick you have something niches, to say rob really niches <laughs> What do you want me to say? Niches? Niches? It, it's all the same to me. <laughs> voltage. <Is it> two, <laughs> two different pronunciations. First voltage and now niche. <laughs> what do you, where I do still you like, I still like voltage. <laughs> yeah. What's, uh, I still what's like going it. on Rob. I, I, I no doubt that you do. Yeah. I'm happy with it. Yeah. Which, which diagnostic port were you referring to? I hadn't, heard of that before there's a little it looks sort of similar to a magsafe but it's a it's a port with some electric electrical pins that is underneath a cover that looks kind of like a sim tray the cover of the watch it's underneath like it's on the inside near where the band is it might even be inside like you might have to take the band off to actually see it oh okay but it's i because i haven't i haven't seen a watch in close enough detail Mm. so i've only looked at pictures and I don't remember the context of where it was, but it was right underneath, either right next to where the band clicks in or under inside where the band clicks in. So it was it was accessible to someone who was making a strap. It wouldn't be right, it, yeah. But the the intent of it would be for like an Apple genius to be able to kind of plug something in and get yeah. diagnostic info from it. Right, you're not you're okay. not charging with it in typical right. situations, but maybe in. In crazy situations, you would you'd be able to diagnose right. problems if there was no connectivity to the watch. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm excited. I, I'm still looking forward to the time when I'm able to get one. I, right now, it's very difficult no matter what. You would have had to order it within the first few hours of, of it being, annou- or being uh, available for pre-order. So uh, we'll see. Maybe in the fall, I'll be able yeah. to get my hands on one. Depending on when they get into stores, I might walk in and try one for two weeks before that but we'll see i remember on twitter when people started getting theirs 
I think I don't know if they had a hashtag for, it, but people were commenting on the number of hairy wrists you yeah. were seeing all yeah. morning. So many funny. wrists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick, you have a story here. You wanted to talk about uh I guess airships? This UK study they did? Yeah, rigid airships. I think we talked about this earlier on Yeah. Some uh, episode. It sounds familiar. Is it a, is it a dirigible? Uh, it's a rigid airship, which is, I think, a dirigible. You can but, dirige it, I would assume. But not a, uh, not a Zeppelin, or okay. however that works. Isn't Zeppelin just a German word for airship? <laughs> no, I thought, like, there is a difference between them as to whether or not they're rigid, but okay. details. So what, what does the study show? Uh, it's not so much, I mean... I think it was interesting, like, you know, the efficiencies and stuff like that they found, like where to cruise, how fast to cruise, that kind of stuff. Right. But it's basically the most fuel efficient air transport there is. It's like, you know, analogous to freight rail or uh, cargo ships. Like it's, it's not going to get it there instantaneously, but it's going to do it with the best fuel efficiency possible. But what I found really interesting in this story was that it came out of the UK's University of Lincoln. Okay. But they're it's part of a multinational engineering project. So they've got I think it's seven countries coming together come coming together to work on this. So that hopefully there will be just you know a fixed uh transportation route for these rigid airships to follow so like you know shipping lanes kind of thing just among seven countries so i don't know what you would factor into wanting to use this but you know you can just have a steady stream of those going along Hmm. has anyone talked about the potential consequences of giant payloads of cargo crashing to the ground in an accident. Oh, I listened to a podcast on that recently. It's on the one that a uh, former rock star has invested heavily in. But they said like they actually did tests on stuff like that and they had they had the thing in a hangar and they just lit it up with machine guns. Oh. To, you know, just blow through the skin but because it's rigid it's not like it pops it just you're limited by diffusion so i guess they just lit the thing up and then you know a few hours later they were still waiting for it to hit the ground from being you know x high and people kind of were getting bored and left huh that's cool yeah it's not good science getting bored (laughs) <laughs> getting bored waiting for this crash of cargo to hit the ground so i mean apparently there are engineering things in place to deal with it mm-hmm. that's so that it's not crazy oh, to me it's not going to be the hindenburg i don't know what right. pressures these things are at but you know it it's not like it it'll pop it's just you hit it and the gas will diffuse out you know slowly right huh that 
That just seems like the craziest experiment you could ever do. All right, guys, we got a bunch of machine guns. We got this airship. <laughs> well, because, I mean, honestly, it's a concern. You got to be like, okay, yeah. what happens if someone just tries to destroy this thing with machine guns? Right. Like, Well, I mean, there's the scale model. Let's see what happens. <laughs> okay. And it seems we're bullish on this, I guess. Is bullish the up one? Yeah. I never yes. remember. Bulls charge <laughs> and bears hibernate. Oh, is that where the bear one came from? I assume so. Hmm. I was wondering what the what was slow about a bear, but yeah, I guess if it's hibernating, then that makes sense. Yeah. And what about At a least... bull is slow? <laughs> a bull no, is so I, fast. I knew bull was the charging one, but it was like, <laughs> yeah. why, why bear? Like, but that right. makes sense. Might not be the actual reason, but it's a good way to remember it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to talk about here was just a really, really cool study that I saw pop up again and again because it has a lot of the, again, we, we've talked about science, how the, sometimes studies have buzzwords like here, and uh, this study has the word nanotube in it. And so Ooh, it's really <laughs> nano. <laughs> uh, so a, a study came out, uh, where was it? it? It was a research team and they did, they were studying spiders. Uh, in a way not dissimilar to what they did in Spider-Man movies. Uh, so they took, da- apparently it's daddy long leg spiders and basically doused them with water and just regular water and compared that to dousing them with water that contained nanotubes and graphite flakes. And uh, apparently the, the spider silk that they make gets way stronger if you have if you have the like nanotubes infused in the water that they have. So um, I like, I don't know. Did you guys, did you guys see about the story or see the story pop up? No, it's very strange that I I'm finding as I get more and more into RSS feeds, I, I, I know that I have a ton because every time I go to open my reader, I have like hundreds of stories. And so I tend to see, like I, I basically gather every single possible piece of news, and so like I, I'm now writing for Mobile Syrup, the tech site, but I see stories days before sometimes they they get posted, and they're like, "Hey, this is cool." And I'm like, "Yeah, I saw that days ago." <laughs> like I should, <laughs> I think I should be more upfront, like posting and talking about these things. Yeah, I've off the record or for the record, I guess I've actually seen Mobile Syrup usually a day or two behind the main stories. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, I think that's somewhat intentional. Uh, they're not trying to be necessarily the first, but right. they're trying to just be consistent and actually cover yeah. the story. Not like they're not trying to be the hot scoop, right? Uh, so, but yeah. Anyways, so this story, this story popped up honestly on like six or seven of my feeds. I saw it over and over and over again. And uh, they, so they basically like it's a very simple study. From from at least what I saw, but are you? How did you not see this, Mike? Even like I know a, I I saw the headline. I didn't read it though. Oh, okay, so RSS yeah. like even CNET covered yeah. it. Yeah, and I know no, I you, saw this. Yeah, I saw the headline. Okay. Just in, yeah, they said uh, that it's actually the the fiber. The resulting fibers from this are actually stronger than Kevlar, which is what they used to make bulletproof vests. And it was just, it wasn't like they again. This is sort of the same way they discovered graphene in that you could get it with scotch tape. Just like take some graphite and use scotch tape to pull up graphene like single sheets of graphene this is the same thing they just took the carbon nanotubes or graphene and put water in it and then 
put the spiders in that water and the water they ended up using to make their webs contained nanotubes. And so they were way stronger. I just think it's. Oh, so the spiders were drinking the water to make the web. Right. Oh, okay. I was trying to figure out where the water came into play there. I thought it was just like literally like the Spider-Man effect of like being exposed to it. And then they got superpowers. <laughs> I I would be a little bit more skeptical of that. <laughs> yeah. that's Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. So they're drinking the nanotubes essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess, uh, I guess it was MIT that did this. They're saying it was in the MIT technology review. So, but it's, it, it's really cool. And they, they had done stuff with, uh, this is way back when I first started really getting interested in science news and getting into RSS feeds when they did, uh, they infused goat, uh, like they infused goats DNA with spider DNA and were able to get goats to make really strong. They were they able basically to mass produce spider silk from goats. And uh, yeah, so I thought it was really interesting that they were able to do this. And uh, I, I again, so with all of this kind of science stuff that this is the first step and we probably won't see the actual real effects of what this could do for another 10 or 15 years. But I think it's a really cool yeah. thing to talk about. I'm and, always, uh, yeah. What? when when these things come up about, you know, this material being strongest than whatever, I'm always curious about how it can scale. Yeah. Because, you know, they say it was stronger than whatever, but that's on a per unit length or mass basis right but it's not like you can scale this to make like buildings out of it or or ropes or that kind of thing because yeah this is spider silk it's not anything that you can really use anything for but yeah it'd be cool if they can actually scale it and apply it to something yeah uh so mike you have a story you want to talk about about canada post what's going on with them yeah it was interesting i from reading some of the comments on the articles, this isn't entirely new, but I always thought it'd be a good idea to be able to use, like everyone orders stuff online and they put in their home address and then they have to either wait around for the delivery guy or hope that they actually leave a note to pick it up or that kind of thing. And then you have to go to the post office anyway. So it's like, well, why not just send it right to the post office? So it sounds like Canada post is actually allowing people to sign up for a program that you can use a Canada post office address to have your stuff delivered to and then you just pick it up right from there instead of having to have it come to your house and left on your doorstep or someone else sign for it or whatever because that can be fairly unreliable so um it's it's good change of the times i guess that you're now able to have stuff sent right to a post office than than a home address so i just thought it was something worth worth mentioning kind of half psa half it was good to see i don't know what you guys thoughts what your experience has been for ordering stuff Uh, i hate ordering stuff Uh, one of the reasons that i've stopped ordering as much stuff online as i do is because delivery is so annoying i'm not going to be home during the day anytime when they have an actual delivery window so i I would actually benefit from this our post box like we're on the new the new post like the neighborhood yeah so we have like half a block away we have a bank of like 90 or 100 mailboxes all in one big box but there's also a parcel box within that thing. And so what they can do is give you, I don't know if it's actually, I've never actually used it. Yeah, it's a key. Yeah, it's there's a key, a key on that comes in your yep. mailbox and you can open the parcel thing and then just take the package out and I guess deposit the key in the yep. slot. So it, that's a pretty good system, but it doesn't work for, again, really 
like bigger things. It's mainly for small parcels. But uh, this is a business idea I had a couple years ago is having like a place, not not like a UPS store because that works for for some people. For Amazon, you said. Yeah, well, any kind of online delivery. Having like college campuses could have a place that they would just drop off packages during the day for students that were doing it but i mean it would, it would work for anyone the the college campus is just a way that there's a bunch of concentrated people who are all going to be able to benefit from the service but the, one of the biggest things that's holding back delivery is how it, it's well suited to businesses but it hasn't made any sort of attempts to transfer to people who are not home during the day monday to friday yeah so like and, everyone know. <laughs> pretty much yeah except for businesses like in the, if personal delivery it doesn't it doesn't work at all you either have to have it delivered to your business or they have to leave like they're one of my neighbors they order a lot of stuff online and it's literally just every other day there's something left on their doorstep with a barcode yeah. on it uh so i guess it works for some people but yeah it's interesting and uh i i hope this does work because being able to i mean obviously you have they've been it's not like this is a new thing they're basically they're basically making it more robust you've been able to have things delivered to a canada post office for a really long time but it's not like they would deliver it to the post office they would try to deliver it to you and leave a tag on your door saying it's it's now at this nearby post office yeah and so yeah if they're making that try to make this more robust then i i can't see that as anything but good and and obviously i'm gonna wait to see if until this is implemented before i actually use it but i'm Anything that can make delivery easier will make mm-hmm. a lot more people use delivery and will make the, the whole thing uh, fine. So, I, Nick, sorry, I was going to say I'm glad to see that because like yeah. their their letter service right now is just awful. <laughs> the letter service is okay, isn't it? I've it's, never had issues with it. We sent a lot of letters and a lot of letters either just come through weeks after they should or just never. Really? Yeah. Maybe you don't send enough letters to notice. I mean, Kaya sends a lot of letters, so it's. Okay. Yeah. I've sent rent checks. Take your word for it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever mailed a letter. Like, I don't think I've ever written a letter, folded it up, put it in an envelope and (laughs) mailed it to someone. (laughs) Oh, you are missing out on one of life's pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> Am I though? <laughs> I don't know. I like it. Yeah. So Nick, you have a lot of a lot of transportation news this week. What do you have to say about self-driving trucks? Uh, they are now authorized to travel on some US highways. The nice. close maneuvering still has to be done by a human, which I guess makes sense. But yeah, their Freightliner debuted a self-driving, like, 18-wheeler in Arizona this week, I guess. Exciting cool. times, because, I mean, I feel like that's part of the transportation industry <clears throat> that could really do with some automation. Yeah, and faster than I would have thought that this happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a lot of the highway stuff isn't really terribly complicated and it could probably benefit from automation. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, just cause people can get bored and that would absolutely happen. Although I'm curious 
because especially in Ontario on the 401, there are a couple spots where you go up a, it's not a huge hill, but it's sizable for a loaded 18 wheeler. And so a lot of times you'll see them, one truck will start trying to pass another as soon as the other one hits a hill and slows down slightly. But then they both hit the incline and they both slow down dramatically and they're right. throttled so they can't travel past like 105 right. kilometers per hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that just causes a traffic jam behind it. Yeah. It's you just see people backed up waiting for these trucks that are now traveling between like 80 and 90 to actually summit this stupid hill. Right. And they didn't have the foresight to leave the passing lane open. So I'm curious to see how <laughs> self-driving trucks might deal with something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about the mechanism that they're using because the course scale navigation of GPS, you can't navigate between like lane changes or, or just even staying between the lines, right? Like you, you can anticipate when a turn's coming up, but you're not going to be able to, like, well, that yeah, would like, be more you know, like fine tune your placement in the lane. That would be more like onboard computers dealing with traffic and, you know, GPS coordinates just for you know navigation purposes. Right. So you'd have to have some sort of optic system to sense what cars are next to you or the lines on the road or that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's so what I, all yeah. self-driving cars have. Right. Okay, so this is this isn't just oh now we can steer by GPS. It's, they're actually legitimately yeah, integrating that type of okay. Cool. The the article I saw was kind of scant on details, but the picture of the driver looks as though there's some onboard computers. Oh, okay. for sure. Yeah, there As not- he sits back and reads his iPad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, know, that seems yeah. like it would be a great job. It says uh, the the four things that it, main things it says that the, the truck will do to drive itself is stay at the speed limit or I guess slightly under it uh, in its own lane, a safe distance, distance from other vehicles and respond to traffic conditions mm. or road conditions. Yeah. Cool. Um, the, the interesting thing to me is going to be as we because this is kind of an inevitable transition as self-driving technology becomes better. But the thing that's going to be interesting to me is how the actual companies that have these self-driving cars address the issue of people being uncomfortable driving around them. So I think you'd have to have I, the, the the fact that it is a self-driven car identified right. so, somehow to make it very obvious to drivers around it that it's computer controlling it. Because otherwise you're going to start to think, which of these is driving itself and is it just going to suddenly lose control if there's a glitch or something? Is that just like unnecessary technophobia being encouraged though? I don't I don't think so. I think it's kind of Because if a, you can't if you can't tell then who cares? You shouldn't have to worry about it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yeah, in an ideal world, I think it just during a transition period you want people to have a level of comfort that this is be be on the lookout that cuz if there's if there's any if there's even a 0.1% glitch rate per 100 miles, let's say that's going to be terrifying to every driver everywhere. So I think that during the transition, it'd be nice to just have people know that 
this is happening and be able to be confident to see that, oh, this, I can't even tell that this is self-driving truck. It's cool that it's, it's like perfectly in control. But cause like I was driving or I was a passenger in a car about six weeks ago and we were, we were passing or we were trying to pass a semi-trailer and all of a sudden one of its wheels started like violently wobbling. <laughs> like it, it was about to lose a tire. It seemed like. And immediately, like I, I've seen horror stories and videos of, of truck tires flying off and hitting cars. So immediately I was like, okay, like I, I had alerted Julia to the, to the problem, the fact that that was happening. I was like, just stay back, like cautiously go around it and we'll, we'll probably be fine. It, it's, it was slowing down dramatically as this was happening. So it was like, it wasn't a huge risk of it happening and it eventually kind of stopped going crazy. So it seemed like it was either going to get off the highway or, I guess crazily keep going and try, hoping it wasn't an issue, but I just we just sort of gave it a wide berth, went past it, and we're fine. Right? Like you don't know if that truck's going to lose control all of a sudden, but it's comforting to know that even though this truck doesn't have a driver, yes, it's going to be fine. It's going to be able to make this trip. Yeah, I think on the note of being aware if it's self-driving or not, I think in all the stories we've covered about self-driving cars. And in the research that I've heard reported, time and time again, self-driving cars are shown to be safer and more reliable than human drivers. Right, yeah. Like for, like for myself, even in my own experience driving, there have been, in the past you know, week or two, like lots of times where like I had a lapse in paying attention or you know, not seeing my blind spot enough or just you know, being tired at the wheel and not like just being fully in it or whatever. Right. And it's like a computer doesn't get tired. A computer doesn't miss a blind spot. Like well, yeah. those are human things, but you're not constantly driving around saying, Oh, is that guy paying attention? Is that guy paying attention? Is that guy tired? Is that guy drunk? Like you, you don't, you're not paranoid. Right. So I, that's why I don't think it's necessarily beneficial to have to instill on people. Oh, well we should be aware and worried about these self-driving vehicles. How much more, more money could bars make? If you could just be like, no, no, I'm not even sitting in the driver's seat. Like my car is just going to take me home. It'll be okay. Yeah. Well, see, and that's the other thing. You'd still need a sober, competent driver, like an operator of the yeah. self-driving vehicle. If you can't and- get out, okay, Google, take me home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like you, I, I bet even distracted driving laws would still apply for self-driving vehicles. Yeah. 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 Right. Like you can't just have someone in there just not paying attention because you still need that person in there. That well, that is the implication. Like that people are reading while the car takes them somewhere in all the like live dramatizations yeah. that you see. Yeah. Like but I, I don't guess know if that'd be the. Uh, maybe you're there enough that you can like put down whatever you're doing and take over in the event of a lapse or something. But mm-hmm. the other thing I was gonna say is. Uh, from driving on Alberta's highways recently. Uh, One thing I think would be good for automated driving is paying attention to the speed limit (laughs) because QE2 is so long and so flat and so wide. Just look down at the speedometer every once in a while and go, whoo, I need to slow down now. The the unofficial speed limit on QE2 is... 110 actually no that's the unofficial that's the normal driving speed what's that 
That's the official posted one. No, the official one's a hundred. I unless you remember seeing one ten, like <laughs> no. between Alberta and Edmonton, or oh, Calgary and yeah, Edmonton like somewhere outside of Calgary. Yeah, but when you're in the city, it's a hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but everyone else goes one ten anyway, and then the people speeding are going like one twenty, one thirty. Yeah, yeah. But if you're not going one ten, your people are passing you constantly. Yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest thing to keep in mind when we come to when we as we transition to self-driving cars is <clears throat> the fact that if you're if you have a self-driving car some they people will want a human to be responsible for what happens to that car. Yeah. So if you're not paying attention and your self-driving car crashes, they're not going to blame the car, they're going to blame you. Even if Self-driving cars are way safer overall than humans. People will want people to blame for things going wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the distracted driving thing will come in. You will you will still need to be responsible for the safety of the car, even if you're not the one making the changes or if you're not the one driving it safely. Yeah. Yeah. The oh man, I had something and now it's gone. Oh wait, no. Um. I was going to say, like, maybe this will also be an impetus to revise the posted speed limits places. Yeah. Because a lot of roads are engineered for speeds way over what they actually are. And a lot of speed limits in Ontario, anyway, like the speed limits are for worst or like bad conditions. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, the 401 is engineered in most places for 120 or. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the equivalent of 70 miles per hour. Yeah. But they hacked it back for the OPEC crisis. And they, my understanding is they haven't raised it for safety concerns, but yeah. now between Toronto and Trenton anyway, the de facto speed limit is 120. Like if you're going <laughs> significantly under 120, you're impeding the traffic around you and causing it a, causing an effective jam yeah but yeah i don't know it'd be nice to see or even like the sea to sky highway in vancouver i think they widened it by a couple lanes and made it bigger and flatter and they kept the speed limit the same (laughs) right yeah yeah so the thing's now engineered for like 80 to 100 kilometers per hour but we're sticking with 50 it's like yes it's a great idea guys there's a couple east-west highways in Calgary like that too. Like Glenbor could be faster, but it's set for 80. Parts of Crowchild could probably be higher, but it's like 70. Like there's there's various – Deerfoot's the only one that's 100, but you could easily make others 90 or 100. Mm. But Yeah. I think not. as more roads become – or as more cars become self-driving, we'll have to kind of adjust our expectations for speeds because if a car is able to automatically adjust for speed – or for conditions, it's able to adjust speed for conditions, then it will know to drive slower during a snowstorm. Because Wait. I think it would be fine if highways in Alberta are flat and straight for the most part. And they have gentle banking curves if they do curve. So you could have a speed limit of 120 or 130 or even possibly 140 in some places with no danger. But like during a during like a dry summer day. But during the winter you can't but they can't have like seasonal speed limit changes. So they have to err on the side of the worst possible conditions. Yeah. 
And I think they well, said that was something that the sensors took account. Yeah, yeah, yeah took exactly. into account the yeah. road conditions. I wouldn't say that the postal speeds are worse conditions. I'd say Not worse, they're still, but, they're still designed yeah. for under ideal right, conditions, exactly. but they're underestimating the maximum allowable yeah, speed. Because they can't they yeah. can't adjust on the fly based on if it's per if it's a perfect day and there's no traffic, there's very little to no danger of going right. thirty kilometers faster, thirty kilometers an hour faster. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. App- apparently like the way that you're supposed to do it or the way it's classically done is you take off the speeding or the speed limits you let cars just drive at what they feel comfortable and then you make the limit the 85th percentile interesting so you're still giving 15 percent cushion no you're saying okay you're the top 15 percent percent maybe you could slow down a little bit (laughs) yeah but the vast majority of cars are traveling this speed or lower right Mm -hmm. and so i mean the idea being that people are actually driving lower than the speed limit because it is a speed limit. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Makes sense. That's yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, I'd never heard that before, but that, that makes sense. There are also some experiments being done in like downtowns and places like that where they've just taken off the speed limits and they found people actually drive slower. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I've heard like traffic is generally 100% safer when there's no signage whatsoever and you have to actually pay attention to your surroundings to get. Yeah. Instead of like looking over, over like way over here at signs, like actually looking at the road and the people around you. Yeah. 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 Crazy how that works. (laughs) Yeah. Like unless I'm on a highway, I'm never really even close to the speed limit. Like when I'm downtown, I'm not like, you know, keeping my speed under 50. It's like I'm crawling at 30 anyway. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like that. That speed limit is totally helpful, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm cruising along at twenty right now. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. It seems we've come to a junction, so to speak. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> Nick, you have to go. Mike, do you want to keep going or do you want to end it for this week? Uh, I don't know. Did you have another story you wanted to cover before you left? I just I feel like after an hour is when we really start to loosen up and and get to interesting things but i don't really have any i don't have anything that i need to get to this week so i'm fine stopping it yeah i'm i'm good to stop okay in that case thank you very much for listening to this week's future chat i'd especially like to thank audible.com one more time again for helping to support the podcast uh don't forget that you can help us out by visiting audibletrial.com slash unwind right now and that will start you off on a free 30-day trial as well as a free audiobook uh we'll be back next week with more science and tech talk And in the meantime, we are now, or at least the newest episodes are on SoundCloud. We'll be transitioning the back, uh, the back 50, I guess, or so to SoundCloud in the coming weeks. But uh, go check us out at soundcloud.com slash unwind media. Be able to listen to episodes and you can actually go and comment at specific times if you have something interesting to add to the commentary. Uh, We'd love to have your comments there or anywhere else. Uh, And you can find past episodes of this show and more at futurechat.me on the web. See you guys next time. Bye, guys. See you guys.